Hello and welcome back to our podcast, Where Do I Know Them From? As always, my name is Alexandra. And I'm Elizabeth. And this is the podcast where we watch every single Sam Claflin movie and report back to you guys on their quality. Yeah. And this one was really good, I have to say. Oh my gosh, <laughs> this one was crazy. Came out of left field for me, for sure. Uh-huh. Yes. Our letterboxed reviews reflect accordingly. This movie has a lot of negative letterboxed reviews, which you might not expect. So I tried to get a pretty good breadth of them. Okay, good for you. Very even. Good reporting. Thank you. The letterboxed reviews for this movie are hilarious, and I do suggest that everyone read them because the girls are fighting. The film bros are fighting in the chat, and it is very funny. Anyway. It is funny. Our first review is four stars. It says... Anya Taylor-Joy is the girl of your dreams. Mine too, bitch. You're not special. (laughs) Heard. Me too. Um, Yeah. Then we have two stars. Guess every right has to make a wrong sometimes. That's right spelled (laughs) W-R-I-G-H-T. Good one. Good (laughs) wordplay. Well, I didn't find it, obviously. Anyway, thanks for that. I'm going to accept it for them. 3.5 stars. I'm not like other girls. I only listen to music from the 60s and hallucinate one woman's slow descent into the abusive sex work culture of 60s Soho. Yep. And that's the whole movie. Perfect. That's the plot summary. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was Last Night in Soho. Yeah, it was. And it came out in 2021, Uh directed by Edgar Wright. It was also screenwritten by Edgar Wright. Notably, this is the same Edgar Wright to which our two-star review was referring of every right has to make a wrong sometimes. Yes. It was also screenwritten by Christy Wilson-Cairns, and it was edited by Paul Maclis. The cinematography is by Chung Hoon Chung, and it was costumed by Odile Dix Miro. It is 116 minutes long and has a huge cast. Our main character is Thomasin McKenzie. She plays Eloise or Ellie Turner who is a fashion college student at the London Fashion Institute or the London Institute of Fashion, whatever, the good fashion school in London, whatever it's called. Anya Taylor-Joy plays Alexandra or Sandy Collins, an aspiring singer in 1960s London. Diana Rigg plays Miss Collins, Eloise's landlord. Matt Smith plays Jack, who is from the 1960s. We later position him kind of as like a pimp in the 1960s. He like is Sandy's handler kind of. Manager turned manager manager man yeah in the evil sense he is the principal villain here yeah for most of the movie mm-hmm. michael ajow plays john king john notably the only good character in the entire movie we love him terrence stamp plays the silver-haired gentleman i did not know that that was his entire name we'll tell you more about him later yep Sinova carlson plays jocasta who's ellie's original roommate and then kind of her peer tormentor Rita Tushingham plays Peggy, Ellie's maternal grandmother. She lives with her grandmother because she is an orphan. And Sam Claflin, you knew he was coming. <laughs> you know him. We love him. Plays Lindsay, who is a young vice squad officer. He is credited in the film as punter number five. And that's appropriate because he is also on screen for approximately five seconds. Yeah, he's listed last in the cast on purpose. <laughs> yeah, this man was not in the movie. I don't know why he was there my only theory as to why sam claflin such a large actor plays such a small role is one to indicate to the audience that Lindsay is going to be important or someone you should watch out for and remember or two that he was originally going to play jack matt smith's character and like had to back out for scheduling reasons or something but i don't know yeah because sometimes actors will do that they'll be like oh i still want to be in the movie can you make me a smaller role or something but yeah i couldn't figure out why he was such a small role i agree that it's weird i was very happy with it this is going to be unpopular, you guys. I thought this was Sam Claflin's hottest 
yet. This man was so damn fine. The way they shot him with his little blue eyes, I was like, this is amazing. I am obsessed with him. He is enchanting. It was a very different look for Sam. And one reason is that he was extremely put together. Like his hair looked like, you know, in the 80s when they had hair that just looked like it was helmeted on. (laughs) It was like that, but in an attractive way. Like it was like perfectly waved. It looked solid. Like if you would hit it with a hammer, nothing would have moved. He was shot in like neon lighting, but he looked like he had like very tan, like a healthy glow, very bright blue eyes. And he just had enormous charisma. Yeah. That's why they brought Sam in for real. We said yeah. we didn't know, but it's because of his raw animal magnetism. We talked on our last episode about Sam's very particular looking smile. And his smile in this case was supposed to make him look like a good person. I love um, him. I just want to pinch his little cheeks. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. It was scored by Stephen Price. It was produced by Film for Productions, Perfect World Pictures, Working Title Films, Complete Fiction Picture, Naira Park, Tim Bevan, Eric Fellner, and Edgar Wright. And it was distributed by Focus Features in the U.S. and Universal Pictures internationally. The plot is a young girl, Ellie, passionate about fashion design, is mysteriously able to enter the 1960s where she encounters her idol, a dazzling wannabe singer. But 1960s London is not what it seems, and time seems to be falling apart with shady consequences. That is kind of true. Ellie pulls up to London. She wants to go be a big-time fashion designer. She meets Jocasta, her awful, awful roommate, and decides, this is not going to work out. I need to move. So she picks up the very first ad she ever finds for a new housing situation. It miraculously works out for her. I would love to know her secret for finding housing immediately. She calls up this lady, Miss Collins, says, hey, I hear you have a room. Miss Collins says, yep, here it is. You can stay here. Your only rules are no boys and um, no loud noises after 8 p.m., basically, which is fine. Like Your average elderly landlady rules. So she continues to go to class. But her very first night in this new room, she wakes up and goes downstairs and she is in 1960s London. And she also is Alexandra or Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy. And you can tell this because first when she walks through, everyone is very nice to her and recognizes her. And then she stares into a mirror and she sees Anya Taylor-Joy instead of herself. She sees Sandy instead of herself. Sandy is notably different because she has a different haircut. It has bangs and is very 60s. She looks like she's got a bump it in. She's like very blonde. She's hyper blonde. On top of being like a different actress. (laughs) That too. Yeah. Obviously, there are two different actresses, so they look different. Yeah. Anya Taylor-Joy is kind of noticeable. If anyone has never seen her before, you should look up a picture of her because she is a very distinctive looking person. She has like really, really big eyes. So she is quite distinct looking. So then kind of once we look into the mirror, then Eloise stops walking and she starts just following in the mirror. And instead we start following Sandy. And that's kind of like how the movie goes Yeah, is that every night Eloise returns to 1960s London as Sandy. And she progressively learns more and more about Sandy's life. Sandy wants to be a singer. She's failing at being a singer because she gets picked up by a Jack instead of by a singing manager. And Jack pimps her out. So she becomes like a sex worker, like a sex worker, not like, like she originally... becomes a sex worker. I think she is first like a dancer. She's some sort. Oh, of... yeah. She and, works at a burlesque and... club. Yeah. And then she moves into like straight prostitution. So she moves through various types of sex work and the prostitution all takes place in her room. So like she'll bring her male clients back to this place that she is staying, which we find out is the same place that Ellie is sleeping, which is why we think that they are linked. As the plot continues, you find out that Jack is increasingly manipulative. Ellie's life starts to kind of deteriorate. One, she starts to try and look like Sandy. She, like, gets the same haircut and dyes her hair. 
She's trying to recreate Sandy's dress from the first night that she saw her for her fashion class assignment. She starts to be like increasingly preoccupied with the 60s. Like she goes out and buys a lot of 60s stuff and she has very vintage taste to begin with, but she starts to buy like things from the 60s rather than making her own. There's like a montage where Sandy is meeting all of these men in the clubs and it's implied that she's having sex, but you don't quite see it on screen. That all culminates in her having like one interaction with Sam Claflin's character, whose name is Lindsay, I guess. And we learn that he's like a vice officer. She makes some little joke about how he's a narc and they have a a little moment. And then we eventually get to the first of a couple of climaxes, one in which Sandy is sexually assaulted by Jack, her manager. And Ellie kind of at several points, she is knocked out of the body of Sandy. I think the reason she is knocked out is that she is experiencing trauma or that Sandy is experiencing trauma. Like the first time we see her being a burlesque singer rather than a singer, she is kind of knocked out of the body. And then here again, when she is being raped on screen, she is knocked out of that body. And so she sees Sandy die and get covered in blood and Jack walk away. And so she is trying to solve this murder. She's like, this man is the silver haired gentleman who we've seen around at my place of work, the Toucan, which is a bar. And so she's trying to get the police to arrest him for murdering Sandy. So she's like doing a little historical research and trying to prove this. And then later, Eloise tries to accuse him. In which he basically says like, I didn't kill Sandy. Alex killed Sandy. Or Alexandra killed Sandy. He gets hit by a car while they're fighting, while Eloise and the silver-haired gentleman are fighting. And everyone that was in the bar comes outside and they're like, Lindsay. And she's like, what do you mean, Lindsay? This is Jack. Like, it's obviously Jack. And the bar owner is like, you're fucking dumb. That's Lindsay. He used to be a vice officer. (laughs) And then Eloise is like, no, I killed the good guy. Then she goes back to her house with John, her bestie, the one that we are big fans of. She's kind of like, I need to leave town immediately. Like, this is not good for my mental health. I am having panic attacks in fashion class. I'm not sleeping because I'm experiencing the 1960s instead of sleeping. Things of this nature. She walks in. She has to tell her landlord, Miss Collins, and says, Hey, I'm leaving. Sorry. As the film kind of progresses, we start to get followed by all of the men that Sandy has slept with. So like these like ghosty looking people follow her around and try and chase her, which is scary. Men are scary, especially when they are dead. They're also like faceless, which is super like they're they manifest in a very scary way. They are manifesting in a scary way. Miss Collins says, oh, sit down and have some tea. And so she does like a fool idiot. Never drink the tea. She says there was a police officer around here earlier inquiring about the murders that you are accusing people of and she's like oh yeah haha having a bad time of it maybe i'm having mental breakdown and instead miss collins says no you're right (laughs) someone did die in your room and it was me she says this in a very particular way but she's basically like i killed my old self there and then she just she directly confesses to killing every man she ever slept with and burying them in the floorboards in the walls of this house and these are the men who have been following and pursuing ellie the tea was poison. <laughs> She's trying to kill her. Then comes like the real climax in which she, Alexandra stabs John. Ellie finds out what's going on. She runs upstairs. She's trying to like hide. And instead, what ends up happening is the police start coming because John called the police. Luckily, good for him. We love John. And Alexandra says, you know, I'm not going back to jail. She just kind of gives up basically and cuts her own throat and sits down to die in the flames because a cigarette has been knocked into some vinyl. So the place is burning down and Ellie and John escape. But an important part of the plot, I think, is that in the chase scene that you're describing, Ellie goes up the stairs and upstairs where all the scary ghost men are. She tries to call the police. That's why she's going up the stairs to get to the phone. 
and the ghost men help her. They help Ellie pick up the phone. <laughs> and then there's some other reason she can't call them. But like you think the whole time that the ghosts are chasing Ellie to hurt her in the dream world or whatever. And then ultimately in the climax of this movie, all they want to do is help her get Sandy or not like get Sandy, but like they want to help the resolution come so that they can pass. Right. It's like the classic like ghost situation where they just want resolution in their life so that they can move on to the next little spirit world or whatever. And I think that's important because I want to talk about gender. Excellent point. And I'm glad you brought that up. Alexandra dies and we have one quick resolution scene just to show us that everything is fine. Like that Ellie passed her fashion class and she designed the sixties wardrobe and she is probably dating John and her grandma's proud of her and all that stuff. I know that we don't normally give you such a long or such a detailed plot, but it is kind of important because a lot of those elements are things we're going to be revisiting today when we talk to you about this movie. So just hold on to that and we'll refresh your memory when we get there. (laughs) This movie received a 75% on Rotten Tomatoes from the critical audience and a 90% from the audience. The critic consensus reads that although it struggles to maintain its thrilling early momentum, Last Night in Soho shows flashes of Edgar Wright at his most stylish and ambitious. The audience says that Last Night in Soho has visual thrills, a great soundtrack, and a plot that keeps you guessing. In other words, everything you want from an Edgar Wright movie. I thought that this movie was very different for Edgar Wright. And I don't mean that derogatory. I mean it neutral. (laughs) And what I mean is I can see how, like, depending on what elements of Edgar Wright you like, you could love or hate this movie. If you are, like, a Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, World's End kind of Edgar Wright fan this movie might not be funny enough for you. Mm. But if you are like a baby driver, Edgar Wright fan, or even the Scott Pilgrim, Edgar Wright fan, you might really like this movie because of the visuals and also the sound design and aesthetic of the piece. I personally, I'll just tell you, we'll talk a little bit about the director because I think it's really important since he is a very distinctive filmmaker. I've seen Hot Fuzz, Baby Driver, and Scott Pilgrim, and now, of course, this by Edgar Wright. I have seen Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, World's End, (laughs) Scott Pilgrim, Baby Driver, this. I have the taste of a toxic film bro, so probably more. I, like all men between the ages of 25 and 35, have to love Edgar Wright. I think you might agree with me that Edgar Wright has a very distinctive filmmaking style, which depends on a very particular aesthetic. He also typically, I think, relies on really excellent music choices. I have never seen an Edgar Wright movie where every single song didn't slap. Incredible soundtracks. He kind of choreographs people's movement in his movies to fit the soundtrack. I was going to say more than the fact that the soundtrack, like plenty of movies have good soundtracks. It's like the way that he integrates the soundtrack into the story, the way that the sound is a character. Yeah, 100%. I would definitely say that if any director has a sound as a character, it's Edgar Wright, like in every single movie, just because characters move to the music in a way that I've never seen other people do. The best example is that like frequently characters will like take headphones off and the music will stop Mm -hmm. or like put headphones on and the music will start. Or yeah. like in Baby Driver, he's doing all that shifting in time. Well, I really appreciate that about Edgar Wright. This movie then is kind of different in that the music is also not like modern. This movie exclusively uses 60s music. Usually he like has multiple decades, whereas this one is just 60s. So yeah, that's Edgar Wright. That's your little crash course on him. Music good. Music good. Visually also stunning. <laughs> yeah. I think honestly the Edgar Wright is probably one of my favorite directors. 
And I have not even seen many of his movies as you have. Very film bro of you. I know. You would is. like World's End. I'll watch it. World's End is an excellent movie. World's End is slept on. Of that trilogy, World's End is slept on. <laughs> if there's one thing about men between the ages of 25 and 35, it's that they love Edgar Wright and they might not even know it. You're so right. Yeah. So if you're a man listening to this movie and you've ever between been 25 of- <laughs> to 35, check out Edgar Wright. You'll love him. Yeah. We have not even gotten through our critical response yet because we got too caught up in how much we both love Edgar Wright. Oh. Oops. Metacritic gave this movie a 65 and the audience gave it a 7. Shocking. Which is shocking for Metacritic as the two main characters are women. But it's a boy movie. Give them credit where credit is due. It is a boy movie. By Edgar Wright. Letterboxd, by the way, gave us a 3.4 out of 5 stars. I, on the topic of gender, would like to talk about it. Go for it. This is a movie deeply rooted in the female experience in that the conflict is rape. Yes. Like the conflict is that someone is being forced into sexual encounters against their will. And also that like in Ellie's like timeline, she is being chased by these men who harmed another woman. Right. For much of the movie, the antagonists are men. And the general vibe is like men scary. Yeah. And then at the end, when those men ultimately help or try to help Ellie get out of the situation, and we learn that Alexandra is like the bad lady all along, that's a really interesting turn for me for a couple reasons. On one hand, I think you can read it. And I think that this is how Alexandra and I both read it. Otherwise, we wouldn't really like it. You can read it as men corrupted Alexandra and made her do crime, do bad things, murder men. And that that means that men are still at fault. And obviously so is she because she killed people. (laughs) But I think that there's a specific angle when you have this men are at fault, but so is Sandy or Alexandra. They're the same person. And I'm just going to decide right now that I'm using them interchangeably. But in having those ghosts end up kind of being good, kind of helping her in the final hour, you have this not all men take that has the potential to be read in kind of a weird way. I think that the intention is gray area, that you can be a bad person and make a good decision or like you can be redeemed, like there's redemption. But in the context of systematically oppressing this woman while she's trying to like make it big in like the London club scene, the idea of, oh, those guys weren't actually that bad is not very appealing to me. <laughs> I do not want the end of the movie to be all these men that ostensibly raped her are good. I have been noodling on this while you've been talking. And I feel like the villain of this movie is the male gaze. To a certain extent, if you put on your film scholar hat and you read Laura Mulvey's article <laughs> about visual pleasure, then... All film is male gaze and all film is voyeurism. I have very rarely seen a movie in which that was so actualized as this one. In that the male gaze is what, one, makes Sandy desirable, two, forces Sandy to turn to sex work rather than becoming a singer. The male gaze is what builds her career as a sex worker. Like we later find out from a silver-haired gentleman, the silver-haired gentleman turns out to be Lindsay. (laughs) And I don't know how you feel about this one. The male gaze is what's kind of driving Ellie as well, parallel, in that when she arrives in London, the first interaction she has with a man is literally just with his eyes. It is her taxi driver, the one who says to her things like, I could be your first stalker and are all the models living together in this building? I'm about to come move in. Like, 
things of that nature. And you're literally just seeing his eyes say this in the rear view mirror. And then she has, except for John, also exclusively negative interactions with men throughout the entire movie. And they're kind of like driving her. I don't know as solidly how the male gaze applies to those ghost men, other than that they are trapped in this limbo because the male gaze, i.e. the system, is demanding that Sandy come to retribution, you know, like that someone hold her accountable. But I feel like that's more of a stretch. I like that read a lot insofar as it makes the plot more fulfilling to me. I really struggle. Obviously, there are problems with it. You just identified a couple that it's not a perfect fit. And that's fine. I recognize that like symbols don't have to be one for one and they don't have to be fully developed to be like relevant or like meaningful. But I really struggle with the idea that a man tried to make a movie about the male gay. Obviously, men can and should make movies about women. I'm not trying to gatekeep gender experiences from people. And we should all be doing more to try to understand the experiences of those outside of our own demographic groups. But I just feel like I can't really tell how much of it was intentional or how much of it like could have been more developed in another way. Like, I just, I don't know what the takeaway from this movie is supposed to be. I took away men scary. And it's just very, it's very interesting to me because I feel like a lot of the rest of his films are really bro-y. And this is like a really significant gender departure from that idea. And I want to really love that for him. And I really want to be like, wow, this is like so new and exciting. And he executed this flawlessly. But my more critical, like hyper analytical brain is like, hmm, how? And like, am I reading too much into stuff that doesn't matter? No, I think you're so right in that it's possible that just because we are women, we are reading this as like that very particular genre of horror, which is girl horror. And by girl horror, I mean horror in which the horror is being a girl and like the horror is the female experience because this, like you so rightly said, is about rape. The whole movie is powered by rape and by sexual assault. And I can't tell if Edgar Wright intended it to be like a feminist horror or if he intended it to be another bro movie in which, oh my God, the girl is the villain, you know? Yes, exactly. That's exactly how I feel. I can't tell. I guess it's because Eloise and Sandy could both be slightly more developed. Honestly, all characters in this movie could be slightly more developed, but it's really hard to tell what is supposed to be like, girls can be evil too. And what is supposed to be like, this is the way that women experience trauma and the world and it is scary to be a girl. And does it matter? Like postmodernism would say that the author is dead and it doesn't matter what (laughs) Edgar Wright wanted out of this movie, just what I experienced, the audience. That might be why the audience on Letterboxd, you said they were very divided. It might be why. I think so. A lot of women were like, this is not accurate to the female experience. And like, there was a lot of disagreement over specifically like how girl this movie is supposed to be or is. You asked me a question while we were watching this why is girl horror as a genre and that's not an official genre it's just what i'm terming it but why is girl horror so rapey and other than that the girl horror genre is kind of characterized by the horror is being a girl i don't know do you think that it has to be rapey or like have sexual assault overtones or undertones i don't know i've thought about this so much i want to know why sexuality is so important to girl horror 
and I was thinking about it a lot during this movie, but maybe men just be like, ooh, cool, cool period piece, <laughs> cool Spotify playlist. I have truly no thoughts about why girl horror is so sexuality focused, but also like even when it's not about sex, it's about sex. The whole time I was watching this movie, I was thinking about Killing Eve okay. and Killing Eve is written by a man. And I think that's important because so is this movie, except it's written by a man and a woman, technically. And I just feel like this tendency wherein there's like two female characters that are like obsessed with each other. There's this tendency to like write that as really sexual. And I never really get that. I understand that like it works for some people and it's a really excellent way to integrate queer subtext into a story. But I just feel like so often there's this trope of very straight woman becomes so obsessed with kind of sexually ambiguous woman or like mysterious woman in general. And you can read it as they're in love or you can read it as like the obsession has gone too far and now it's sexual and that's weird. And this movie doesn't do that. And I thought that that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Instead, the movie portrays them. Sandy is never aware of Ellie's existence until we find out that Miss Collins, Alexandra, is aware that Ellie has been living her life. Which raised the question for me of how often does this happen? But <laughs> I want to talk to you about the mechanics later, so I'm going to hold off on that question. But Ellie is always aware. Ellie has this kind of dual mind going on in which she knows that she is Ellie and she knows that she is Sandy whole time there's one point it is the scene in which sandy is talking to sam claflin in which he as a vice squad person you know someone who's trying to stop sex work (laughs) says to her you're too good for the sandy pretty little thing like you laying in the gutter i'd get out while you can girl you're better than this she says i don't think i am he says of course you are look in the mirror And she doesn't. She resolutely refuses to look in the mirror. She says, what if I don't want to? Then maybe it's too late for you. And because she is resolutely refusing to look in the mirror, she does not see Ellie, who is staring at her in this mirror. And like Ellie bangs on the mirror so hard that she breaks through the mirror and hugs Sandy. But just as she hugs Sandy, the scene snaps into their bedroom. And she like wakes up and Sandy's like on the ceiling saying like, you know where to find me. It's very mysteriously. But that like breaking through to me, a lot of the movie was also about body dysmorphia in that like I could not tell genuinely if this was intentional in that both Ellie and Sandy try on different names. In the very first scene, Ellie is looking in the mirror in her very cool newspaper dress, by the way, fashion designer queen. But she's kind of trying on different names. She's saying like Eloise Turner, Ellie Turner, E.T. Turner. You know, things of this nature. She's like trying to find out what her professional name is going to be. Sandy does the same thing. She introduces herself to Jack, Matt Smith's character, as Alexander. And he's like, that's not going to work. And she's like, Sandy. And he says, perfect. But then every single time that she has sex with a man, we get this like extreme montage in which they're like, what's your name? And she says, Sandy or Alexandra or Lexi or Allie or any number of names. You know, there's so many names to abbreviate Alexandra, as I well know. And so she just experiments with names and they're always like, oh, pretty name. And then they have sex. And that's kind of like a cacophony of sounds for Eloise at one point. But to me, trying on all those different names also speaks to a kind of dysmorphia and that they don't really know who they are. or They're not comfortable in their skin. And the fact they're kind of wedded, these two people, says that maybe, at least for Eloise, she is trying on a new life when she is visiting Sandy. 
which is why she kind of like takes on some of her physical attributes like her hair and some of her clothes. I think that this has, for me, that had a lot to do with, yes, body dysmorphia. I don't have good evidence as to why I felt that way, but definitely yes. Even if just like because they see themselves differently than they look. (laughs) But also like the whole thing read kind of like this experience is universal. And I think that's why I read it so much as like men are bad. (laughs) Because like these two completely different women who have completely different circumstances find themselves in the exact same apartment experiencing the exact same things Eloise doesn't feel like confused inside of this body like there's no like weird moment where she like feels uncomfortable in this position and I think that that really reads like all women experience this idea of being preyed upon and used and manipulated I feel a little bit also like to a certain extent, Ellie was kind of being consumed by Sandy, but it was never visually portrayed that way, just in that, like, she was kind of starting to dress like her, but she didn't ever, like, you know how the ghosts were kind of, like, increasingly corporeal towards the end? She wasn't, like, fading I think or anything it's like, like that. I think that that part has a lot to do with becoming disillusioned, right? Like, we have to build Sandy up in our brains so that when at the end something terrible happens okay because she has this very glamorous life and she's like met this very like hot and sexy guy who wants to like help her become a like a singer by having this like Eloise wants to be her like is obsessed with her life that makes the fall all the harder so I think that element of the obsession definitely comes from the fact that like that kind of culture is really glorified, like the nightlife of the 60s is definitely glorified. And then ultimately, like it was really bad for some people, maybe namely Sandy. <laughs> There's just like, I guess, danger in idolization. Something else that's kind of that, like, that danger of idolization and something that also kind of, I think, brings us back to that question of is Edgar Wright doing this as a feminist work or not is... Eloise is that classic, I was born in the wrong era girl, yeah. you know, which is that like almost a classic manic pixie dream girl type in that she's like fantasizing about a different time. A she time doesn't in which, fit in with her peers. Yeah, she does not fit in. Not enough. She's not like other girls way, but enough she doesn't fit in because she, I don't know. I it's think just that a she vibe. is not like other girls. She doesn't use that to like get a man. So I, like she doesn't say I'm not like other girls and she doesn't put down other women but she definitely like doesn't fit in with her peers. Another aspect about this though, about that like I was born in the wrong era and the like this very particular type of woman that is very attractive to predatory men. Her voice is very small. She has extremely delicate features. I don't know if anyone has never seen Thomas and Mackenzie, I encourage you to look up a picture of her because she has incredibly delicate features. She has a very small voice and a very raspy voice in this movie. And I just feel like that combined with the I live in the 60s is such a dream girl type for men like uh, they fantasize about this and i feel like because edgar wright makes so many dude bro movies or at least movies that appeal to dude bros maybe it's conscious you know maybe he is like consciously crafting a dream girl not to continue referencing all of edgar wright's other filmography although it's all excellent so if you are ever looking for a good movie go check it out particularly if you are a man between ages 25 to 35 but in baby driver the same phenomenon happens in that there is this like dream girl lily james who I think most of the world would recognize as being extremely beautiful, is just kind of not a whole lot of personality super into baby. And that is exactly what's kind of going on here. Honestly, very kind of you for not immediately going for the jugular. But like, it's this is the classic Ramona Flowers conundrum. 
another Edgar Wright movie. Like, it's just this girl who's, like, just a girl. She's just any other girl. But she's, like, elevated to this, like, mysterious, sexy status by the main character just by nature of, like, having a few things in common with the main character. Yes, Ramona Flower is probably a better known one, too, because that movie's older. Yeah, it's just the it's the dream girl thing. And I think that Eloise has that in a way that Alexandra doesn't. Alexandra is a much more defined type, right? And she seems, at, le- at least for a while, she seems far more in control of her sexuality. Even if she is being raped throughout much of this movie, she seems to at least know what her sexuality is and how to use it to achieve an end. Whereas Ellie is kind of more on a learning curve. That's really interesting. I don't perceive that to be true i think that i think that both of them are dream girls in a different way he picked anya taylor joy for a reason (laughs) like yeah she's so very beautiful and uh, i think that her deal is like exactly the same but she's less naive like she's very strategically using her sexuality and then and men still turn that on her in the way that like ellie is super naive and like just doesn't know blah 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 Anya Taylor-Joy's character, Sandy is like definitely in control of her sexuality and yet men still take that from her. Like it happens both ways to both iterations of this like dream girl. Sorry, I didn't mean to imply that Anya Taylor-Joy's character, Alexandra, was like in control of herself during rape, just that she... No, I don't think that you were. I just think that she is also a dream, like just different. I don't think that it's fair to say that she's a distinct type because Ellie's character is also a distinct type. They're lusted after for different reasons. I think one other aspect of that kind of dream girl, at least in the Ellie brand of dream girl, in that she is haunted by her mom. She has hallucinations. Okay. I think this gets into the mechanics that you wanted to talk about before. I don't necessarily know that she's haunted by her mom. I think she can just see dead people. Mm. And I think that it's implied by Sandy that other people have had this experience when they check into the little room, like, or when they start renting the room, she says, I've had people leave in the middle of the night before. But I also think that Eloise can see dead people because she sees her mom so much in the beginning of this movie. And like, why would you include that? Why would you include the like ghost manifestation of her mom if not to imply that she just has a a natural maybe the other people saw ghosts but weren't like transported back in time or something like that but i think that we're supposed to believe that there's something special about ellie regardless ellie sees dead people in the mirrors like her mom a couple times throughout the movie appears behind her in a mirror not in a i'm stalking you way in just like a parental from beyond the grave type way which I think is interesting since we learn very early in the movie that Ellie's mother committed suicide. So I think it's weird, one, that Ellie is fantasizing about seeing her mother or or actually seeing her mother, depending on whether she can see ghosts. And two, that if her mother is a ghost, why is she appearing? Yeah, great point. I think the mirrors bit of that is probably the more important part because mirrors are such a yeah. symbol in the movie and that really we're not supposed to think about why she's seeing dead people we're just supposed to accept that she is i do though like you said want to talk a little bit about the mechanics one because i found them confusing and so just know ahead of time that we're not going to probably come to any solid conclusions but i wanted to pose the question of do you think that her trips to the 60s 
are a hallucination, like a dream, a reality. Because here's the thing. When she goes to the police and she says, there's been a murder in the 60s. And they're like, cool. <laughs> like, we can't prove anything. She says, I saw those details in real life. And that made me question, is her life real? Like, is Ellie living a real life? Or is, I don't, I don't know. I think that this is really a good question. But I cannot stress to you how much I am not invested in the answer. And I don't think it really matters. Because I don't think that there's necessarily any conclusion to be drawn about sanity from the answer. Like I don't think whether or not Ellie is insane changes the takeaway Mm -hmm. at all. I think that it could be a hallucination or a dream or reality. I think that a lot points to I don't even really know I guess she doesn't like nothing happens to her in the dream that like she has a leftover from in real life which I guess could point to a hallucination or a dream but I just really don't think that the answer changes what we're supposed to take away from the movie I think this is like a magical realism kind of situation I agree and I know that's not what you know I wanted to posit to you that it's kind of all three of them like as much as it doesn't matter, oh, okay. it's kind of all three of them. Here's what I mean by this. I'm just gonna give you some aesthetic details about the movie. When she first arrives in the '60s, everything is beautifully choreographed. It is very Edgar Wright. Everything is moving perfectly. Wes Anderson would be having a wet dream here. In that, like things are symmetric. The cars are moving at an even speed. Everything is shiny. Everything is kind of neon. She walks through perfectly symmetrical doors where two doormen anticipate her entry and swing open the doors at the same time, like synchronized. And so it just feels a little bit like the 60s are a little too put together in a dream sense. And the placement of things is just a little too perfect. But at the end of that first night, when she is first met up with Jack and he is like kissed the hell out of her, she wakes up the next morning as Eloise with a hickey. Oh, yeah. That indicates that despite living through a sort of dream, it is real physically also. But also there's like those, like I said, at multiple points, Ellie is snapped out of Sandy's body when Sandy's experiencing trauma. And there's like several hallucinatory scenes in which things kind of blend together. So to a certain extent, I think that Edgar Wright's filmmaking, like his filmmaking style, lends itself perfectly to saying that many things are both a dream and a reality at the same time. You know, like you said, with magical realism. I think that's maybe like his type. His movies are magical Mm -hmm. realism. Particularly... Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. I think the trauma read is a good one. I know that you know this and that's why you're bringing it up, but I feel like the out-of-body experience that goes with the... Okay, not only is Eloise like kicked out of Sandy's body, but like the implication that Sandy is also dissociating in that moment is a good read. I wanted to say one more thing about the dream reality type situation, magical realism type situation. So we'll tell you about it now in which... When Ellie is trying to accuse the silver-haired gentleman of murdering Sandy, she finds him at her place of work, the toucan, which is an underground bar. You have to walk downstairs to get into it, not that it is, like, hidden or anything. Because it's Yeah. I'm glad that you brought that up because that's exactly what I mean, is that she talks to this man. She accuses him of murdering Sandy, and he says to her, I didn't kill Sandy. Alex killed Sandy. Then he says some really crazy things to Eloise. Like when she's walking into work past him, he is singing a song by Barry Ryan, I think, which is called Eloise. He's saying, my Eloise, I'd love to please her, but she's not there. And 
that's one of the things that knocked into my head. Is she real? Is Eloise real? Like, is Eloise not there? I would love if Eloise wasn't real. I think she is, unfortunately, because, like, her name is on the door when she goes to school and other people see and interact with her. She signs a lease and it gets mail. Like, unfortunately, I think that she's real, but it would be kind of cool. So here's what I want to posit to you, because at the end of the center action, the silver haired gentleman says to her several things. He's really fucking creepy. She's like, I know what you did to Sandy. And he's like, I've done a lot of things, love. You're going to have to be more specific. And I'm like, did you kill her or what? Like, why why else would you say it that way? He's like almost taunting her. He seems to know that Eloise and Sandy are connected in some fashion. Like he knows that they are living the same life. And at one point he even says, at the end of the day, you all look the same on a slab, which I was like, why would you say that to this little girl? She's clearly having a mental breakdown. So I wanted to say to you, because I know that you feel like the toucan is hell. I think that the silver-haired gentleman, who we immediately afterwards learn is Lindsay, Sam Claflin, is the devil. In that, like, Soho, broadly, is a little bit hellish, with the toucan being hell in particular. And he is, like, the guardian, because he says that he's, like, kind of watching out for the girls or all the sex workers in Soho. I don't know if that's a good read, but he just... That interaction where he is like taunting Ellie and basically like being really aggressive with her despite the fact that he didn't kill anyone is weird to me. Okay. Again, I think that that would be cool <laughs> if it were true. Listen, I get it. I I get a cab. I understand. But he represents the yeah. law. I think that he's supposed to represent judgment. Okay. And I don't think that, like, the devil is a good analogy. Maybe perhaps judgment, judgment day more broadly, okay. right? Like, ultimately, they come out of hell. They come up to the surface. And, like, that's when the truth comes out. So, like, I like the route that you're on. But I don't know that it's, like, a one-to-one he's the devil situation. Yeah. Just because, like, just because he's supposed to represent truth. And because he knows a lot about yeah. her, right? Like, he's supposed to represent this, like knowing and like judgment because he's he's the law i was just trying to think of a figure who would be kind of like dominant in the toucan hell and also omniscient Mm -hmm. i definitely like your read of him being like judgment or like judgment day because immediately after yeah when he dies is when we go and meet alexandra and find out that she is sandy i find his character very interesting because i think in a lot of ways you don't need him yeah But in many ways, I mean, it's nice because for much of the movie, you think it's Jack, but Mm -hmm. old. And then it it turns out that it was Sam Claflin, but old the whole time. So that was nice. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about Lindsay as a character. But again, it's like, I don't know. Now I'm like, is that just another man that I'm supposed to like think was good the whole time? Like. He's definitely also corrupt and mean to her. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, boy. I'm really grappling with whether or not people can write characters that are different from (laughs) This is just a life theme for me, though. I'm really going through that era. I don't think we're going to draw any conclusions here other than crack open a lot of questions about, like, what were Edgar Wright's intentions here? And regardless of his intentions, what did he make? Yeah. Which, like, who cares? Because postmodernism says the author is dead. 
And all that matters is my interpretation. I don't have a lot else to say about this movie because we've kind of talked through like all the major issues and we know that we're not going to come to any conclusions. So I just want to throw a couple more things in, which is John is such a sweet summer child and he deserves the entire (laughs) world on a silver platter. Yeah, he was a good romantic interest without me being like, oh, why does she have to have a romantic interest? And then finally, the last shot of this movie is Ellie looking into a mirror and first we see her mom. Sweet. Her mom is proud of her for finishing her fashion show. And then her mom becomes Sandy. Sandy appears in a mirror again, even though she is dead. And I and it is also during the day, not during the night. So I just want to say, why is Sandy still there? Yeah, I think that was a pretty good indication of like, she sees yeah, dead people. She just be seen and also like, trauma stays with you. What died didn't stay dead, to quote the great Taylor Allison Swift. But also like, the the dead don't die (laughs) like it's just this like idea of the things that happen to you live with inside of you like even after the resolution has come that's a great tagline for this movie trauma doesn't die trauma doesn't die girl Girl horror horror. well do you want to rate the movie out of five five yeah okay i also gave it five stars i think that i've been really teetering on whether or not i should give it four and a half stars here's the thing It's not a five-star movie. There are technical things about it that I did not care for. For example, in the middle section, there is really slow pacing. After she has seen Sandy die in that first scene where she is, like, again, knocked out of that body, she, like, goes on a little Mm -hmm. little research trip, and it's just very slow then for, like, a little too long. Yeah. And that section, I feel like it could have been edited better or just paced better. Otherwise, though, yeah, excellent. It was exactly what I wanted in a movie. It was scary. I screamed. I personally do not appreciate very much when horror films and thriller films rely a lot on suicide trends, like su- like the themes of suicide or like suicidality and on rape. Right. But I also know that this movie could not have been made without both of those things. Yeah. And so I think it's more of a general critique that I have for the genre in that I think that you need to find two things that are also scary. Like, I think you need to find other scary things to build into film, but they were well used here. I'm not a horror girly, but I liked this movie. Yeah. I also really liked the two minutes of Sam Claflin content that we got. So I'll give Sam four stars. I think that Sam's presence on screen was electric here. Like he really dominated like that one scene that he was in. Which was good because he needed to stand out from the other people to yeah. make sure that we all knew that he was going to be important. So for I think sure. I would agree four stars, maybe three and a half just for limited screen time. Alrighty. Thank you guys for tuning in yet again to our podcast where we talk about Sam Claflin and what that mouth do. And <laughs> we can't wait to see you all next week. And if you just can't go another minute without doing something relating to this podcast you could leave us a review on apple podcasts or spotify or wherever you're listening to this right now but definitely not on stitcher because rip stitcher and also you could follow us if you're not already on instagram at where do i know them from and we would be ever so grateful for you to do that absolutely see y'all next week 